to high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. We have an important and interesting episode to share with you today. We will be talking about the heart. The heart is known as a vital organ that sustains life. It pumps blood through 66,000 miles of blood vessels and delivers oxygen to every cell in the body except the cornea. The heart is also associated with emotion. Happiness actually helps lower your risk of heart disease. And on the other spectrum, a broken heart can cause temporary heart failure. Drugs affect the heart. And people who inject drugs are susceptible to infections of the heart called endocarditis. Alcohol, cocaine, and methamphetamine are cardiotoxic, meaning they cause direct damage to the heart muscle. This results in congestive heart failure or cardiomyopathy, which are fancy words that means the heart is not pumping well. Today in California, the problem with methamphetamines is so severe that if I treat a patient under the age of 50 who has congestive heart failure, chances are they got it from methamphetamine. Interestingly, opioids and heroin are not cardiotoxic. Today, our caller is a first-year medical student who is studying about the heart. I adore this caller. As a matter of fact, I just love her with all my heart. She is inquisitive, hardworking, brilliant, beautiful, and she happens to be my baby girl, Ariella. She is sacrificing her fairly charmed life to give back to her country. I'm very proud being a military mother. Ariella serves as an ensign in the United States Navy and is a first-year medical student. Hi, my name is Ariella Lee, and I am a first-year medical student and also your daughter. I love you, and I'm always excited to listen to each High Truths episode. Currently, I'm studying the cardiovascular system, and so my question today is how marijuana specifically affects the heart. Ariella, thank you for taking time away from the books to ask us a question here on High Truths. You make your mother so proud, but I won't get gushy on the show. When Americans think of the heart, they also think of the American Heart Association. The American Heart Association is a nonprofit organization founded in 1915. It is known for its famous courses, CPR, First Aid, ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support, PALS, Pediatric Advanced Life Support. The American Heart Association is the leading advocate in preventing heart disease and stroke with education on tobacco cessation, a healthy heart diet, and lowering cholesterol. The American Heart Association is also involved in educating with the opioid epidemic, and they provide courses on recognizing overdoses and giving naloxone. Only the very best for my daughter and my listeners. To answer the question about the heart, I bring you an expert from the American Heart Association, Dr. Robert Lee Page. Dr. Robert Page is a pharmacy professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Physical Rehabilitative Medicine at the University of Colorado, Denver, as well as the Schools of Pharmacy and Medicine in Aurora, Colorado. 
He is the clinical specialist for the Division of Cardiology Section of Advanced Heart Failure and Heart Transplantation. Whoa, there are few more things more solemn and critical as needing a heart transplant. Dr. Page leads the Colorado Evidence-Based Drug Utilization Program. He has an extensive pharmacological background, but comes to high truth as an expert of the heart. He's a fellow of the Heart Failure Society of America and the American Heart Association Council on Clinical Cardiology. While he published over 200 peer-reviewed medical articles, we will focus today on his landmark article from the American Heart Association. The American Heart Association published a scientific statement on October 2020 on medical marijuana, recreational marijuana, and cardiovascular health. Dr. Page received his Bachelor's of Science degree in Biology and Chemistry from Furman University in South Carolina, his Pharmacy degree from Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, Master's of Science in Public Health from the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and Specialty Residency in Pharmacotherapy with a focus in Cardiology from the Medical University in South Carolina. Boy, that's a mouthful. Dr. Page's bio is included in the High Truths show notes. Dr. Robert Page, welcome to High Truths. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Lev. It's an absolute pleasure um, to be on your show today. Well, we're excited to have you. And congratulations on your publication on behalf of the American Heart Association. Thank you so much. We were, as I said, it was a labor of love. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's interesting to hear on, a, you know, on research that it's love. So that's great yeah, that you, you must love research. And, you know, there are thousands, I don't know, millions, maybe, of publications every year that go through the medical literature, scientific literature, but this one really stands out. It's special, and why we call it a landmark article, because the American Heart Association has made a bold move in publishing the science and sticking to the science when it comes to protecting the heart from marijuana. I wonder why, what was important and what drove the American Heart Association to embark on this effort? Well, you bring up a very good point. Um, the, the, really, it's been the political landscape in terms of how medical recreational has changed, and it varies by state to state. And so this question kept coming up, and the American Heart Association says, you know what, we need to look at the evidence we need to look at the risks or potential benefits. We need to address this, um, particularly, um, and you bring up a really good point. The American Heart Association is very big on prevention of disease um, and getting ahead of it. Um, mm -hmm. They were one of the first to address the issue of smoking in the, in the 50s and 60s. You know, we used to think that was healthy. <laughs> right, right. Also, for e-cigarettes. Um, that's it. That's another one. They've been very, very forward thinking. And, um, and also one of the things I want to highlight is the fact it's very multidisciplinary. It includes all aspects from nurses, physicians, pharmacists, PhDs, everything when evaluating, um, the evidence that's out there. And again, I do want to highlight the fact again, the, uh, the AHA doesn't take a stance on whether or not recreation, re recreational medicinal use is right or wrong. That's not it. They basically are that this clinical science statement, it is evaluating the science um, and also the risks at this point in time. And as we've talked before, this truly is a moving target. And as more and more states increase, um, they lax a little bit more in terms of the 
requirements are that like making medical marijuana or uh, recreational marijuana legal within their state, the questions are going to come up. And so this is an excellent, excellent place via which we can, um, we can start the conversation. And so I applaud the HA for willing to do this. And I thought you'd say, um, because I've read over the years, several articles coming from cardiologists who were talking about, you know, the issues with marijuana, that that may have been a motivation for the American Heart Association to to actually put a, a statement. You know, another thing too, it just happens to be also um, during this COVID crisis, the number of individuals buying marijuana is particularly within my state in Colorado, it's gone through the roof. So use is becoming very pervasive and so providers need, and again, from a safety standpoint, you know, I treat cannabis just like I would any other cardiovascular medication. And those medication, medications have side effects. They have drug mm-hmm. interactions. That, and, and people need to realize that just because something is natural does not make it safe. Um, you could say that with regard to any herbal supplement that's out there, uh, which is also not regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, clinicians need to, you know, we're always so worried about having this conversation with patients. This is a way to have that conversation that to allow both providers and patients to be transparent. And that's what I encourage all of, of, of like with the patients that I deal with, they, I want transparency because if I know ahead of time what you're doing, I can, we can make the, um, the necessary changes as need be. Right. And you're absolutely right about that. I mean, is there are risks and, and benefits and they should be treated that way. So you did, and then, oh, I just want to mention something. You mentioned COVID. I, I visited a, a rehab center recently here in California and I asked them, you know, what's your most common problem? I actually thought that they would say alcohol because that's alcohol is the most common problem, especially the pandemic. And they mentioned cannabis, that they were getting the most patients in their in, in their detox and um, and program from from cannabis during the pandemic. So I thought that was interesting. But you reviewed your article and, and statement and had extensive research and, and citations. Um, when you did this and collected, were there any surprises in, in the findings? Well, uh, uh, and again, before we get into the evidence, and is to, is to first talk a little bit about the limitations of the data that are currently available that, mm-hmm. that we looked at. Okay. A lot of the data that exists, um, just to point out, uh, is what we call observational meaning that these are not randomized controlled trials. These are large evaluations of use within health health systems, and which includes a a very large N. I was very surprised at the, the, when you really dig into the data, the large number of patients that are evaluated. The second is, is the majority of data that are out there currently are with regards to smoking, rather than edibles. So I do want to highlight that. And then number third, so, you know, conversation you and I are having is this difference between first versus second generation cannabis products. First generation is more what you would have thought about in the 50s and 60s and 70s um, at Woodstock. It's basically homegrown, 
This is basically it. Da, 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 da. So the majority of data that I would say that is out there is really with smoking and first generation. When we get so into first the- generation is low potency, low potency. Right. Now we're getting into the second generation, which I call designer <laughs> cannabis. I call it genetically modified. Absolutely. You're right. Dr. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly what it is, where yeah. the potency is so much different. And then again, also moving into this, the, the, synthet- the, the edibles. Now, when you deal with second generation, I do want, as I said, this is the pharmacist in me coming out. You do have prescription forms, and then you have what's called synthetic. The prescription forms are things like Marinol um, and, 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 a, and a few other products that are actually on the market um, that are derivatives of THC. Epidiolex is, is one of those. That's the new one that is actually derived from um, the cannabis plant and is, has a combination of THC and CBD. Um, I, thought, to, I, I thought it's pure CBD. Excuse me. I'm sorry. There's well, there is actually a small amount of THC still in that product. I would say Mm -hmm. Um, it's not as like what you would see with Marinol, which is Dronabinol, which is almost purely THC. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you also have the synthetic forms that are things that you can that are really illegal. Um, Like like it it falls in the same category as like bath salts and those type of things. Those forms of cannabinoids. Spice, absolutely. It and that I have to say, completely, completely dangerous. Um, but when we, I was surprised. I was surprised uh, to to really see the uh, the actual prevalence um, of cardiovascular issues that we did find um, from within the literature, uh, and. And also the the amount the the lack of some data that we really do need is just not there, and it makes sense while it's not there because again it's still considered a Schedule One substance, so it makes it very difficult in order to study. But you know that doesn't that doesn't. What are, what are some of the things that you wished you you were able to see that well, are missing? Things I would love to have seen. Um, really, if you're going to look at efficacy. Um, I, it would really be nice to see randomized placebo control trials. Those are ongoing. We do have a few that are ongoing here within Colorado. We're looking at its effects on PTSD, also looking at its effects on depression. Um, uh, again, it's with the effects of, of pain control, uh, particularly in this, this um, era of um, opioid abuse kind of coming up, trying to evaluate what, what, you know, can I use this for pain or not? The other thing too is, is evaluating what the actual dose um, is. That makes it very difficult because that's again, variations in products across the board. Um, it, it is, it's an issue. And I wish that we had that, but and again, with the change in our political climate, we might see that. The World Health Organization said just, what was it, last month that they wanted to remove cannabis from one of these illicit substance lists. And so we'll see whether or not how the United States adapts that or not. Right. Because, and regardless of legality, just like you you started um, this conversation, it doesn't matter, legal, illegal, we need people to make informed decisions based on science and fact. Absolutely. And that's where we, um, basically that's exactly 
why this statement has, is out is that because clinicians, providers need to have that open conversation, transparent conversation with their patients. Um, and, and the article the, the, and the statement from the American Heart Association was, uh, I thought, really tried to be unbiased. And you had all the pro that, you know, you know, how can marijuana be helpful? And you had a list of articles and summary. And then you had a list of harms. Um, what, what struck me is all in all the studies, and you tell me if you got this or if I'm, you know, it's just my bias. But when I looked at all the pro studies, the number of people were like 50 patients, Absolutely. you know, small handful of patients. You don't make a policy on a population of 40 million based on 50 patients. We made that mistake with the opioid epidemic. We don't want to do it again. And the list of, of um, articles that listed harms, their number of patients was in the thousands or even millions. And well, the reason is, is because there's, there's a lot of red tape um, when trying to do cannabis research, uh, as you well know, as an expert, um, mm -hmm. you, you, in terms of getting things through the IRB, the paperwork is like this thick compared to anything else. Um, number and the, two, the IRB is the, the ethical Internet. organization that allows you to do research, right? Absolutely. It's really the IRB is the investigational review board, and every health system has one, and it's designed to protect patients. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, you know, and that's. But the thing is, it's a schedule one on the same level as heroin and LSD. Um, and the other problem is, is that you have only a few places in the United States where you can obtain cannabis um, for research. So there's a lot of red hips. So that makes I, I understand why those are that. But as you can say, it's it's big print. For uh, uh, for the uh, the, the harms for, for heart for beneficial <laughs> effects, small print because of all the literature this air on negativity. Yeah. So it, you're right; that's exactly it. Yeah. And so, but you you mentioned scheduling, and I don't I didn't see anything about that in in the statement. But does American Heart Association or you have a a, a viewpoint on changing I, the schedule to, of marijuana? Yeah, I have to say that um, the American Heart Association does not take a stance on that. I mm -hmm. have to make sure that I disclose that. They do not take a stance on scheduling or non-scheduling. Right. Um, personally, as a researcher, I have to say I would like it to be de to, to become unscheduled. And then again, that's my own personal bias. And the reason is, is in that form and fashion, we're able to analytically study it. So compared to placebo, we would actually know the exact rates of stroke and of arrhythmias, new onset atrial fibrillation, worsening heart failure. We, I could give you as a physician that exact number. I can give you that specific risk. And that's what I want to be able to do for my physicians and my providers is to be able to do that. Can't really do that without, if I'm in terms of study design. I'd be interesting. I don't know if the schedule change would give you that data that you're looking for. Well, it would give us a little bit of leeway. Yeah. Um, it would allow us to open the door in order to, to it, it would basically allow the, in terms of the red tape would be much less. Yeah. Um, we would be able to obtain product, not just from federal centers. We would be able to, um, you know, I, we could actually really evaluate what, what's being sold um, within, uh, within pharmacies or within dispensaries. Yeah. We you know, definitely like, need that information. 
Yeah. Like for example, all these CBD products that you can find at like Whole Foods and I get calls all the time and I'm like, I, and they're expensive. You're looking at 60 bucks sometimes for a little tincture. People are buying them. <laughs> and they're buying them because they're like, oh, it's natural. I need to do it. To be honest with you, it's not regulated. It's not. <laughs> well, there was a publication in JAMA that looked at, you know, a, a, I don't know, 75, 80 different CBD products and tested them and yep. found that accuracy and labeling was very low. Very and they did it with TSA. So it's Absolutely. so you really don't know what you're buying. I know you're exactly right. That then it was only a re, it was published as a research letter. I wish they had put it as a, like one of the main original articles because of that fact. Yeah. Um, the variation that exists, but you know, we've seen that with herbals all the time. That, right. that those data have been definite. Um, but um, you know, so one of the questions that always comes up is then why don't you bring these products in and you're in a school of pharmacy, you can evaluate these things. We can't because it's illegal on our campus. It's a schedule one drug. I cannot bring any of those to evaluate. Interesting. Do you see where I'm getting at with regards to, it would be really nice to actually truly evaluate that prospectively. By the way, for our listeners, if you go to the store and you're buying vitamin D to prevent COVID or zinc, and you, we said that these herbal supplements are not regulated. But if you do look at the label, there's a little USD standards label. US, is it USD? USP, USP? United USP. States. It means it's yeah. good manufacturing. And I represent the AHA for the USP. So I do say I'm one of their voting members. So I will say that is something. The other one to look for, Dr. Lev, is a good housekeeping seal. That's another mm. one that actually is. is oh, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a helpful tips. And I, I, for myself, I go and I make sure that I buy, if I'm, you know, buying vitamins or anything, that they have that that seal. Absolutely. So let's talk about the heart and problems with the heart yeah. and what you kind of saw in the study. Heart attacks. Um, this marijuana uh, association with millions of studies, million of patients over a 24-year period. You looked at that and tell us what you found as far as cardiac deaths. So what we found, it's interesting in the case of um, patients with myocardial, uh, the, the onset of myocardial infarction, it was actually, believe it or not, mostly in males. Um, it was a younger population. And the other thing too, was with regards to smoking. And that, in, in my mind, that makes sense because again, based upon what we call pharmacokinetics, meaning looking at the onset and how it's absorbed by the body and metabolized, whatever, when you're smoking, you are absolutely stimulating your sympathetic nervous system immediately. It's getting into the bloodstream immediately. It bypasses the liver. So you're going to get that effect. So in individuals, um, particularly um, who had underlying cardiovascular disease, if you're seeing the increase in heart rate, what we call tachycardia or hypotension, if you have underlying cardiovascular disease, that can worsen, actually worsen someone and therefore end up leading to um, acute coronary syndrome. Um, The other thing that I do want to point out that was a little bit alarming to me as you were talking surprise was the issue of regarding stroke. I, there was some, I mean, again, and these were published in very high respected peer reviewed journals showing that Mm -hmm. there is an association between stroke, particularly in younger adults who are using it. Again, it was primarily related to smoking um, and not the edibles. We don't really have very good data with regards to the edibles and whether the edibles are the same as 
smoking? We we don't know. The other is um, looking- and that makes sense, right? Yeah. You're, I mean, if you if there's blockages in your heart. And you're in the vessels, your vessels affect your heart, they affect your brain, they affect different parts. So Absolutely. I think you concluded that cannabis is an independent risk factor for, for heart attacks. Yeah. The associ- and- As I said, we can only say an association because these aren't prospective studies, so we can't say causation. Um, but we, we saw the, an association with very poor outcomes with regards to hospitalization and related to these cardiovascular events when we evaluated the data. But it's a risk factor. So for example, medical students are told, you know, if you're having chest pain, um, the, they classically ask for risk factor, which is high blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, family history, tobacco. So, um, so maybe we should be adding marijuana. Absolutely. You just hit a big <laughs> point. That's something I wish we, this is the reason why I want some more perspective research. I think that we need to include that as a risk factor. Again, that's personally, that's not what the AHA states, but- I, I thought I read that in the article. Yeah, yeah we, need, but we, need, yeah, we need to make, I think that this could be a potential risk factor that, yeah. that you're seeing, but we need to stratify it based on whether or not it's being smoked versus mm-hmm. edibles. And I do want to highlight this because I can say this on behalf of the American Heart Association. Do not recommend vaping or smoking cannabis, period. The amount of carcinogens that that are found in cigarette smoke is very similar to what we see within smoking cannabis. We're, you know, I know with all this COVID, the um, the pulmonary toxicity stuff that was then the deaths and things that were related to um, vaping has kind of been under it's not on the forefront anymore. But I don't. I just want to highlight again that vitamin E acetate is what the CDC thinks, which is is the main cause of lung toxicity with vaping of cannabis because it's used to keep the um, the ingredients solubilized. And right. so again, don't absolutely, not recommended at all. Right. And that was uh, the outbreak that you're right. And we stopped kind of measuring and tracking it as it soon as COVID hit, but we had like a couple thousand hospitalization from E-Valley, um, the vaping lung disease. Absolutely. And yeah. I still bring that up anytime opportunity I have. And I say this with patients as well. I'm like, smoking, bad, not a good thing. Vaping, they go, oh, well, it's safer because it's vape. And absolutely not. Mm-mm. Yeah, not, uh, not. And also the the chemicals and what they break, the um, terpenes that are, are in there also are con- con- carcinogens. Absolutely. What about high blood pressure? American Heart Association is, it cares about and preventing and treating high blood pressure. What's the association? So the association is, is again, when you're thinking of cannabis, you know, you have both THC and CBD. It depends on, again, the problem is we never know what the true concentration is. All of these will tend to bind to a certain receptor. Um, and particularly, there's the CB. Um, there is the um, the CB receptor one subtype and two, and so we think a lot of the negative aspects of and both CBD and THC will bind to that receptor and that subtype one that's found in your brain, it's found in the vasculature, it's found in the myocytes of the heart cells, it's found um, throughout the entire body, and it's it's interesting because what we found is is that you can have, it can go either way. And, and I think it really will depend upon how um, the cannabis is being consumed. But um, we know that uh, that 
CBD as well as some THC will have an effect upon the sympathetic nervous system. And so that can cause hypertension. But we've also seen that it can have an opposite effect. It can cause hypotension in certain people. Get why it's one way or the other is that the majority, though, I would say of the data is more, more of a hypotensive type effect or a lowering of blood pressure. And again, this is seen acutely when you are, um, if they are using a combustible form and are smoking it just because of the rapid onset. Um, you know, I saw that in the paper. I didn't quite understand the difference. And I was wondering, was it dose related? So that's another thing that we brought up within the statement is whether or not is there a dose threshold of THC or CBD via which you see this. And unfortunately, the data that is, was available currently at the time when we were evaluating this was primarily all of smoking it and again, first generation and so uh, cannabis products. And so which that makes it very difficult to know the exact amount of THC that was being consumed. So again, prospective studies can allow us to do this. My and thought is, and again, we weren't able to comment upon this within the clinical science statement, is that with the second generation, again, this isn't your granddaddy's form of cannabis. It's much more potent. And therefore, I believe that as we get more and more data, and again, my the from a scientific perspective, I, I bet you we're going to see more cardiovascular events occur. And I did see that one conclusion is that it increases systolic blood pressure overall. Yes. And I think that that was a solid conclusion. But you're right. If we're if you're studying first generation low potency stuff, that has nothing to do with what Americans are smoking today. Yeah. I mean, that's just apples and oranges. The other thing too that I see both um, anecdotally and clinically are the drug interactions that exist with. Um, with the consumption of cannabinoids. Definitely. And yes. And people don't think about that. And, and in a time when, again, when you're taking, if you're an older adult and you're taking at least 10 or more medications, the risk of an adverse um, drug drug interaction can be almost as high as a hundred percent. So, I mean, with any, Wait, say, say that again, the chances yes. when you have say 10 or more again. medications, when you're taking 10 or more medications, yeah. the suggest that your risk for having a, a, an adverse drug uh, interaction is almost a hundredfold. You're going to have some interaction. That's and, and that goes right to the, the section of the statement with geriatric patients, because geriatric patients are on a lot of medicines anyway. Absolutely. And, and now you're adding cannabis or CBD. Dr. Love, you, you hit right on it. And guess which, again, right now we're seeing the spike in use primarily within young adults, but we're also beginning to see it within our older adults greater than 65. Yep, they're, they're, it's marketed to them now. Yes. And, and so they're the ones you got to be very, very careful with. And so, and, and I feel like they're really being victimized. I, I, as an emergency physician, I look for these drug interactions and I see them. They're not anecdotal. I've treated more than a few gastrointestinal bleeding, uh, people who are bleeding internally. And if you look at, you know, why are they, why is this happening? They're on a blood thinner, but they're also using marijuana and that's a drug interaction and their INR bleeding, uh, you know, their how thin their blood is very high. And it's, it's a, you know, I could see that this is a direct effect that this is not healthy for you. 
Absolutely. And you know, you either bring up another point um, is with regards to these new anticoagulant medications, what we call the NOACs or the DOACs, direct oral acting anticoagulants. Mm-hmm. People think, oh, well, I don't need to monitor that because so I, and, and there's an interact. No, you do. Because again, from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, cannabis, both in bed, this is both THC and CBD, inhibit the major enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing these as well as excreting them. So, and the other thing too, is people aren't using this consistently. So their INRs one day will be super high and then you adjust, you adjust the dose, then they stop taking their cannabis and then it drops. And so yep. I'd love that you are saying that and teaching that. Oh no, I teach you the medical students. I yep. teach, this is that's what so I important. Teach. And that's the other thing I tell patients is that if you're going to be using an edible, you have to be consistent. You treat it just like any other medication because it causes fluctuations in drug levels all over the board. And the two enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing about 90% of the drugs on the market are affected by cannabis. (laughs) Yeah. From a pharmacist standpoint, it's, it's quite intriguing, but it's a big pharmacovigilance issue from safety. And again, as an ER doc, you, I I know you see this. Yeah. I I had one guy who, who was admitted three times to the hospital for internal bleeding, internal bleeding. They keep uh, checking him out, giving him drug blood transfusion endoscopies. And then I finally said, you know, ask him, you know, you don't think about asking older people about drug history, but I, I do. And he goes, yeah, you know, I use every day. And I was like, well, that's not, <laughs> not healthy for you. But the other thing you point out, and I'm sure in your clinical practice, you have seen this is the problems with withdrawal and what mm-hmm. um, cannabis can withdrawal can it, it, a, a great example. We had two, I had a heart failure, a patient with HEFREP, heart failure with reduced ejection fracture got admitted and they could not understand why he was admitted. Anyway, this, that, and the other and it's because when you come into our hospital, because it's a schedule one, you can't bring that in. And so mm-hmm. someone who's a chronic user, which the chronic defined is what's been is what greater than seven days continuous use, we stop it and they go through withdrawal and it exacerbates other issues, just like what I just talked about in terms of heart failure symptoms, the angina, those type of things. And and the team was like, what is going on with this? I just don't understand. I'm like, he's going through withdrawal. (laughs) Oh, wow. Interesting. I've definitely treated, I have not seen heart failure caused by withdrawal, but definitely a lot of anxiety, people coming with with anxiety, because that's the most common symptoms of of Or nausea. That's another one we're seeing a lot of too, is that you can get this intractable nausea um, and I, that's been very well documented. Yeah, that's actually, um, that's probably a daily diagnosis, the yeah. a, a cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Yeah. We call it scrumiting, yeah. screaming and vomiting. It's a, a audible diagnosis. Um, so y- you also talked about uh, pregnant patients in, in your article. I've heard of people visiting dispensaries and they're told, you know, don't tell your doctor that, that you're talking. Oh, that's the worst thing they can do. Yeah, I know I will. I do want to highlight this. And this is just because I'm familiar with listening to some of these things, dispensers. Again, these are people who have very limited knowledge. I mean, they may be familiar with the products, but they have no knowledge of the basis behind the pathophysiology and the science. So I'm always like, you know, saying like Googling, it's not anyway. But um, to answer your question, none of the obstetric 
um, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends the use at all, period. And we also added our two cents onto that as well. The problem is, is that um, both THC and CBD are very fat soluble. In order to cross over a drug membrane, you have to have a fat soluble substance. And then therefore that gets into breast milk and it can cross the placenta. So honestly, that's the reason why we, we continue, the American Heart still kept the same stances um, of, of both um, of the major um, obstetrics and pediatric organizations on with regards to that. So I know you treat um, patients, you're involved in patients with heart transplants. Um, that's about as serious as it could be. And uh, I figured that's why you have such a strong statement on heart transplantation patients in, in the in the article. Well, you know, you bring up a good point because where you're at in California, actually it was legislation that came out of your state that really changed people's perspective. Because before, if you were taking, using cannabis, that was used to be an absolute contraindication to a heart transplant. And basically in California, they were taken to, they took them to court and ultimately said, you can't discriminate based upon this. So one of the things nationwide, everybody's, this is another call to action that we need to standardize this across all heart transplant or in just transplant centers in general um, is with regards to cannabis abuse. Here at the University of Colorado, um, the, the stance that we take is we do want you to be abstinent for the first six months. Um, and the reason for that is because, as we mentioned before, there's serious interactions that occur with some of our major immunosuppressants. Um, which is tacrolimus cyclosporin, where we can see all over the board. So they need to abstain. The only thing that we run into, and, though, and I, just to explain that people who get a transplant are their immune system is altered, and they're also getting medications, strong mm -hmm. medications that suppress their immune system and make them very susceptible to um, infection, especially fungal infections. And, and we know that um, there's one study, I don't know if you saw it from Davis, they went to all the dispensaries, legal dispensaries, and 100% of the product had fungus or some type of infection. Particularly aspergillus. Aspergillus. Absolutely. I'm going to tell you a little story. We had one patient, um, transplant patient who came in and he was growing aspergillus on his tongue from smoking oh. from a bong marijuana. That's the thing. That's another problem contamination, adulteration. So this, wait, this was a heart transplant patient mm -hmm. and he was using a bong. So yeah. he didn't do I mean, that. That thing, even though this was something we're like, no, like he didn't get retransplanted, but he was growing aspergillus and we had to treat him with very high aggressive um, antifungal medications that are also very toxic to the body. So um, it, it, that's another mm -hmm. issue because this isn't regulated. Yeah, aspergillus is a terrible fungus. There was a case report of a young man who got a bone marrow transplant. He died of aspergillus pneumonia, and they did genetic testing on the aspergillus in his lung and in his weed, his pot supply at home, and it was exact same. Same species. Same, same species, yeah. Yep. And so, again, that's a conversation you need to be having with all your patients is there are risks that exist. So people ask your advice as a, an expert in, in cardiology, pharmacy, and, and now cannabis products. And, and if so, you have a heart patient, somebody with, how about, let me give you a case. I had a patient who came to the emergency department um, for back pain. Um, 
and his blood pressure was crazy high. And he was very proud to show me his medical marijuana card and how he vapes to to you instead of using opioids, although he was in the ER asking for pain medications. But, you know, the pain I figured I can deal with. What I was astonished by is that here's a a man with high blood pressure that goes unnoticed that supposedly had some medical visit to get a card. And shouldn't that be a contraindication if he has some type of heart disease? So what what do you think? What about something as simple as that? No, I mean, honestly, this is where you have that conversation. Well, first, I want to highlight one thing, because I know there are data that are published with regards to in state, it was a very large, you know, Medicare, Medicaid database analysis. And we highlight this in our paper. In, in the in the clinical science statement, where we there was a in states that had legalized um, marijuana or cannabis, uh, that they saw a drop in terms of overall opiate abuse and this that and the other. I just want to highlight that this is remember cannabis and opiates bind, work on different receptors, and so you can actually go through opiate withdrawal if you're switching directly to a cannabinoid product for pain. So I just always want to, re- I always warn people, be careful um, with regards to that. Um, it's not something you would, you, you may, you may have, you're still going to have to wean down the opiate um, at the same time you're using um, a cannabinoid. I um, think there've been some large research studies that show that people actually increase their opiate use and, yeah. and, and and not to treat opiate use disorder with cannabis. Absolutely. I'm again, we didn't take any stance on that. We provided what the literature was at the time, but I can tell you when I talk to my neurology colleagues and also my psychiatrist in terms of abuse um, who deal with this on a, on a daily basis, they're like, Oh my gosh, do not think that this can be a substitute because it's not. Yeah, you know, you're not dealing with the same receptors. So, is it malpractice? You think for for them for this man with the high blood pressure to to get a medical marijuana card and recommend it, knowing he has you know uh, terrible uh, or or not even checking that he has I, I, terrible high say, blood pressure. Let's just say this: it needed <laughs> to be addressed, and you can tell whoever was prescribing perhaps just did not wasn't familiar with the literature. And absolutely, this is one thing, Doctor Lev, that we want to look at. And we're looking at it, unfortunately, retrospectively. But if you, as we talked about the use of cannabis and as a risk factor, what happens when you have hypertension, heart failure, and diabetes, or just hypertension, and you're using a cannabinoid? Does that, does that incremental buildup of comorbidities, cardiovascular comorbidities, increase your risk for that? We're looking at that right now. Right. Um, and But you could probably say now that if it's smoked, it increases your risk. Oh, absolutely. Right. I, that I can say. That's based on in the data are published. Right. And then the edibles, we, we don't know yet. We don't know. I'm worried, though, what we're going to find over time is, is that we may see more problems with the edibles um, just because of the fact they're going getting it more into, uh, they're, they're more prevalent. People think, oh, well, I'm... It, you know, I, it's, I'm not seeing this big spike in, um, in cannabinoids within my bloodstream, but I worry that's, we're going to start to see things. It's just going to take a while for it. Right. Um, we unleashed a problem that we're only now going to study of what, what's going to happen. What what about, um, cancer patients? Do you have patients with cancer who say, Hey, you know, shouldn't, 
I use this as a more natural um, to help my pain related to cancer instead of using those deadly opioids? You know, one of the things, um, no, and I, I get that. And, and, and I think within the, and again, I can't comment since I work primarily within the cardiovascular realm, but I can say from talking to some of my oncology um, is that oncology colleagues is honestly that um, there are a lot of variables that have patient specific things that need to be because you don't want anything to interact, particularly if they're on some form of chemotherapy. Um, and I know that the pharmacists that I know that work within those clinics, particularly in our phase one clinics, that they, they look at that and they weigh the risks and the benefits. Actually, and we comment upon this within our statement that there looks like there may be some data, again, data with regards to nausea. Um, and, but in this case, um, and then I know a lot of people want that immediate effect and with, with nausea by smoking it. And again, we don't recommend that. Um, but there may be some benefit, some particular benefit, maybe with edibles, with nausea, within, with regards to within the oncology setting. There's just not a lot of great prospective data to evaluate that. But. Yeah. And, and yet in the emergency department, that's the mo- one of the common problems we see related to cannabis is the cannabis hyperemesis syndrome or scrometing. Right? I, I would caution any cancer patients. I would use... I them right and and mainly because uh, the disease of cancer is an immunosuppressive disease. You're not able to fight infections as well, and we know the marijuana products have lowers your immune system absolutely, yeah. and therefore increases your risk for infection. No, but I completely I completely right. agree with you on that 100. percent That is different than end of life care, where the goals of therapy are different. End of life and palliative care goals are patient comfort. And if a patient wants to smoke or use drugs at the end of life, most doctors won't have a problem with that. So, you know, the, at the very end of this of your article and, and research publication statement, you talk about what are some policy considerations and what you hope for the futures. And you talk about legal education and research. What are some of the highlights that our listeners should, should know about the American Heart Association wants to do with this landmark article and where, where should it lead us? Well, as I said, where this should lead us is this is designed to open the conversation. Um, number one, um, and again, the AHA does not take any political stance one way or the other with regards to this. But we realize, just like from the Framingham Heart Study, when we were looking at risk factors for, with regards to, for ASCVD or heart attack, those kind of things, which is our landmark epidemiology, we, we need to have to be able to, to do this. And so we did talk about the fact that there needs to be standardization in there particularly among the states, because, for example, what you can do in California may be different from what we can do here in Colorado. And in some cases, you um, some are only medicinal, others are only recreational. And then in terms of medicinal, it's only for certain disease states. And so it's very, very, very confusing for patients. And so standardization is something that really we need to be trying to do in terms of policy. But if we just put our head in the sand and we don't have this conversation, um, bad things can happen, as you well know. When people don't, when your your patients don't tell you what they're doing, bad things happen, and so that's what I think we're worried about. Um, and ultimately, we may, I, as I said, it, I'm I'm very interested to see what's going to happen politically 
um, within several states uh, with regards to the potential legalization. So um, ultimately, the other thing that I want to really enforce, and you know, as a professor, it is very, you know, not a lot of places incorporate cannabis into their pharmacology curriculum. And yet it's probably by far one of the most pervasive substances, you wanna call it illegal substances when we look at the, the large data, it's one of the top and we include those mm -hmm. numbers within our paper. But yet it doesn't, you know, they, we're not teaching our new generation of physicians and other clinicians about cannabis. And so I, I'm very fortunate, I think, to be able to do that. And we really called that out, that we need more formal education. Here at the University of Colorado, we actually have a master's of science in cannabis science. Interesting. Um, yes, <laughs> we actually have a master's degree in that. We have certificate programs to, and we're trying to address that issue, get education out so that people can make informed decisions. And I think that's also- what I, I'd like to see the American Heart Association take this, um, the, the paper- and make some education towards patients. Like if you have a heart attack, you know, we know that this is not healthy for you. Absolutely. So very, and, some and very we, clear things. We did say, I think, you know, you know we had the, the top 10 things. And we did mention that the fact that if you have underlying comorbidities, you need to be having this discussion with your primary care provider. And it's probably not going to, based upon the associations are seeing not a good thing. And so honestly, we called that out specifically. But I mean, a simple statement like that would really direct the medical community as well as patients. Absolutely. You know, no, I agree. And I can't speak hundred percent. I can't speak for AHA on this side, but mm -hmm. I don't see this as a, as a topic that's just going to, this is it. We have the statement we're moving on. My thought is, is once we be on it right now, the priorities seem to be a lot focused on COVID, but I, I see the the, the the this is not going away. You're going to see probably some more information. Right. Well, kudos really to you for being, you know, leading this project and to the American Heart Association for thinking about it and bringing it up and and publishing it. I do. And I agree with you. I hope that this is like step one of of uh, uh, on education of, again, medical community and, and, and the population at, at large. And, and Dr. Liv, I want to thank you for allowing us to have this platform in order just to get this out. Yeah. Um, because it's, it is very, I think it is very important to know the risks that and cardiovascular risks that are associated with, with cannabis. And in the name of your article, you mentioned medical marijuana. I always caution people and ask them to put the word medical in quotation, because as you know, as a professor in pharmacology, that before you prescribe anything, you have to do, you know, vital signs, physical exam, history, drug interactions, risk benefit analysis, and yet marijuana gets a path. And I feel like they have hijacked the word medical. Um, and it's more like an opioid pill mill where you come in the pill mill and you, of course, you're going to get a opioid prescription. And of course, if you're, have if you're going to a marijuana dispensary, you're going to come out with some marijuana, no one's going to ever say, no, this is not for you because it's not treated like a medicine. So you know, I, I don't know. I would ask you, you bring up a very good, now that I'm putting on my public health hat. Now this is not with the HA and this is just my, that's a paper that you and I should write together as an editorial and JAMA that that needs to be taken because where that historically has come from has mm -hmm. been from states and politicians. 
Right. And it's a political like, it's group. From, and they've, and I'm surprised the medical societies have not rebelled and say, you're you're stealing this from us. I mean, you work well, you at a what? medical school, right? Yeah. <laughs> I Honestly, Dr. Lab, if you're willing to write the editorial with me, I'd write an editorial. I'm, I'm on it. I'm on I'm it. I'm being really serious. That's I would, oh, my good. God. For me to partner with you on something, that'd be... I'm well, just, no, I'm just saying, because honestly, I think we need to rethink this, how we're labeling. Because you're exactly right. If I say something's medical... And it's coming from a physician. Oh, well, it's it's safe. It's got to be great. No, right. no, no. <laughs> right. They, it's a hijack. They the the industry hijacked the word medical and people have bought into that. And I feel like we need to get the word back to the medical oh. profession. Otherwise, it, it undermines everything I do for a living. Absolutely. You're Hippocratic Oath. There you go. <laughs> I get it. 100%. So. Wow. What a pleasure. Yes. That, I'd be so honored to do something with you. Oh, well, yeah, I think that would be great. And I think say we, you know, I, I would love to do that. Okay. Actually. I would, I think actually you bring up from a public health standpoint, that is very, very important is, is with regards to the, the terminology that we use. So. How exciting. So as we close, do you have any advice to my, my daughter, Ariella, first year medical school yes. student? One of the things that I would I would that, that I tell all of our medical students is the fact that um, number one, we need as we've talked about in the very beginning, we're going to come full circle, transparency, and having and specifically um, asking about cannabis use, um, particularly in the area of cardiology. She's going to be a budding cardiologist, um, and the other reason too is because it interacts with our antiplatelet drugs like clopidogrel and those kind of things, you know. Also, so um, the other is um, is not to be judgmental. I try not. To, I take judgment out of that picture because I want our patients to be sharing that information with their physicians and their providers, and and myself. Um, and so I think that's one of the most important things. Now I will say this next this generation of upcoming budding physicians and providers are a little bit more open um, to this. But again, it's making sure there's transparency and that it's also that a conversation that is between patient and provider and they come to a consensus. So, because that's the most, I mean, honestly, that's. That's great advice. That's great. No, I mean, that's what I teach. I teach you. I'm like you and and not forget to have that conversation. Right. And hopefully Hopefully I live it most of the time, no judgment and, and keep it neutral, keep it to, to the science and, and, and think of it from the patient's perspective. And when your daughter is ready for, for her, her fellowship in cardiology, think of the university of Colorado. We've got a fabulous <laughs> program. You could come All back. Right. Yeah. You guys do amazing work. Um, Ariella, thank you for your question and for supporting your mother. You're a great daughter, sister, friend, and I have no doubt that you're going to be a great doctor. It's a lifetime honor to serve others in medicine and in health, as well as your military service. So thank you for your service. And Dr. Page, thank you for supporting science and the fact on marijuana. And thank you for leading the American Heart Association in this landmark paper and elevating the prevention message on marijuana. I think that that what you have done and the American Heart Association really uh, elevates all the work that people are are doing and advocating on prevention. Again, thank you, Dr. Lev, for having this opportunity for me to be on your show. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible 
without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.